All right. So, as my wife said, Lent began this week. And so, when I say Lent, I don't mean like belly button Lent, though both are interesting and gross at the same time. So, Lent is the 40-day period in between Ash Wednesday and Easter, the season of preparation, the season of preparation for the cross. And for the wise guy out there saying, oh, well, I just counted between Ash Wednesday and Easter, and there's more than 40 days, that's because Sundays don't count. Sundays are mini Easter's. They're feast days, little celebrations of the resurrection of Christ, because the whole reason we worship on a Sunday is because Christ was raised on a Sunday. It's 40 days because that's how long Jesus was in the wilderness after his baptism preparing for ministry. That's how long Moses was on Mount Sinai. It's how long Elijah traveled to Mount Horeb. It's how long Noah was in the ark. It just seems like the biblical standard, 40 days. And something associated with these 40 days is fasting. No eating. No Cheetos, no celery, no toaster strudel. No eating. So gross, right? It's countercultural. Why would you do that? Why would you deprive yourself? Why would you participate in something like that? Are you on that new intermittent fasting diet fad? What's going on with you? Lent is countercultural. People will look at you and say, that's foolish. And so today we begin this series called Paradoxology for the season of Lent. And I'm going to, being foolish is just, well, foolish. Fools build their home on sand. Fools speak evil plans. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Paul called the Galatians foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If you want a book that's going to keep you on the edge of the seat, read Galatians. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is, Paul says, because you understand it well. You have the right beliefs that re lead to the right actions. Being able to live in the world well because you understand it well. And Paul gives us the key to wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you need to become a fool to truly be wise. You need to become a fool to truly be wise. How can he say that? Literally all the rest of the stuff we just went through. What He's just asking me to be a fool when the rest of Scripture attests to the fact that I need to seek wisdom. This doesn't make sense. And when we think of foolishness, I think we automatically think of the European court fool, the jester, right? This isn't the picture that scripture has in its mind, but nonetheless, I think it helps us to have an image of foolishness. The person who dresses up in the full getup humiliates themselves willingly for the sake of a laugh. Entertaining the king, entertaining those who are passerbys at a festival, only good at making people laugh. They're only worth in life 
is humiliating themselves. But what's unique about these people is that all the examples I used before, it's like no one likes to unintentionally be a fool. These people choose to be a fool. Of course, that wasn't always the case, but it was the case in some circumstances. Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth. And when we look at the past, we're tempted to think, or at least I am, that these people are otherworldly. They're like aliens. People in history didn't have similarities with me. They're just totally weird. But the reality is, even if the technology is different, even if the culture is different, they're still struggling with the same things, just in different circumstances. They still have the same desire. The year has just changed. And Corinth was this place that was cosmopolitan. All walks of life were welcome there. It was a melting pot. Think of it as like a L.A. or a New York City. And Paul is writing to these Gentile Christians as opposed to Jewish Christians. It's not as though there weren't any Jewish Christians there. But for the most part, we're talking about Christians who were the first in their family to know about this God of Israel. They weren't unfamiliar with religion, but they were unfamiliar with following this God of the Bible. And so Paul writes to them in the midst of this town that's known for its sensuality. There's even a Greek word coined to act like a Corinthian that just means to have sex. So we have this sensuality, but it sounds pretty barbaric. But then on the other end, we have this love for wisdom. This is really in-depth with Greek philosophy, a love for understanding the world well so that we can live in it well. So think of it like Las Vegas meets Oxford, England. Stimulation of the mind and stimulation of the body. And so if the people in Corinth loved Wisdom And the Bible seems to love wisdom. Are they talking about the same thing or not? Because when we look at the Greeks, I mean, the Greeks recognized that there was a spiritual reality as opposed to the physical. I mean, Christians do that. And the Stoic philosopher said, life is hard, but you'll make it through. You just need to have courage. You need to have self-control. You need to seek justice. Realize bad things are going to happen, and it won't be so bad when it happens. The Epicureans believed money, luxury, and physical pleasure isn't what's going to make you happy. You need to have fulfilling friendships. You need to have a job that gives you meaning, that makes a difference. Man, that sounds like Lakeview. In the world. That sounds a lot like Christianity. And Platonists believe that there is this perfect reality somewhere that this is just a picture of, a knockoff. And Christians believe that the kingdom of heaven, the perfect reality, is coming to earth. So that sounds pretty similar. And I mean, if there's so many similarities between Greek wisdom and biblical wisdom, what about American wisdom? Because, I mean, for the most part, Americans say, hey, you shouldn't murder people. Hey, you shouldn't steal. Uncle Sam says pay your taxes, and so does Jesus. Jesus says feed the orphans and the widows. The government says, hey, I've got WIC and foster care. The Bible says punish evildoers is the point of the government 
And the government has all kinds of law enforcement and laws. But then when we look at Greek wisdom and biblical wisdom, we start to depart a little bit. Because many Greeks believed that the body was bad, that the natural world was bad, that you wanted to escape it, you wanted to get away. Christians believe that God created the physical reality and called it good. Greeks believed in all of these gods who were a lot like us. They had all kinds of flaws. They were selfish. We believe in a God who's selfless. And Americans say, work all the overtime you want, but God says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. America says, seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. James says, ask God for wisdom. America says, ask the university or YouTube for wisdom. Christ says, love those who hate you. America says, love those who love you. Hate those who hate you. Scripture says, live in the spirit. America says, live in the flesh, live in sensuality, live in pleasure. Jesus says, I'm the way. America says, all ways are equal. Jesus says, the best is yet to come. The world says, eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, YOLO. How can we have so many things that are labeled wisdom, that get that stamp, but they're so at odds with one another, so different. How is that? Leo was just an average guy. He drove an average car. He had an average family. He had average socks, average shoes. Leo was average, most average guy you could ever meet. And one day, Leo was on the way to his average job in his average car from his average house, and he got in a car wreck. He was T-boned. That was the end of average for Leo. Now, his average job didn't have that great of insurance, and Tammy, his wife, wanted to make sure that he was going to have the best medical care possible. So she resorted to taking him to an experimental hospital. He would get the treatment he needed. It would be free, but they would be willing, be able to, experiment on his body in the midst of it. Not ideal, especially because the doctor that he got assigned, Dr. Pivot, was shunned by the medical community and was seen as unorthodox. So nonetheless, he went through the surgery. He woke up, and he was groggy, just as you are after surgery. And he asks Tammy, his wife, for a glass of water to deal with the cotton mouth. And she looks at him really funny, but obliges, brings him the glass of water. And Leo's trying to reach out and get this glass of water, but his fingers are shorter. Than usual. Huh. In fact, his fingers kind of look like a little piggy who cried wee, wee, wee all the way home, who bought roast beef, who went to the market. He was trying to pick up the water with his feet. Man, that, <laughs> those must have been some really good drugs. Um, <laughs> but he looked in the mirror, and sure enough, he had feet 
where he thought he had hands and he had hands where he thought he had feet and he had a bottom where he should have had a head and a head where he should have had a bottom. His life had been turned upside down. And soon he started to like it. You'd think he wouldn't. And everyone saw how happy he was living life 180 degrees upside down. And they went and voluntarily got the surgery. Everybody was doing it. Within 10 years, everybody was that way. It took the world by storm. And Leo was average once again. They started to do it on children as soon as they got out of the womb. And it got to the point where if you didn't get the surgery, you were abnormal. It was abnormal to live the way you were designed to live. It became unnatural, foolish, stupid, idiotic to live the way you were designed to live. God created the world. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. He says, I've got one rule. Don't eat from that tree over there, okay? I know it's pretty. Don't eat from it. Serpent comes up on his little legs because he still has legs at this point. It says, hey, guess what? God's lying to you. The best life is on the other side of that fruit. He just doesn't want you to have it. They say, hey, we just met this guy, but it seems pretty convincing. I guess we'll, I guess we'll eat it. So takes a bite. And that's when the surgery happened. That's when true wisdom was exchanged for foolishness. God's wisdom was exchanged for foolishness. And foolishness became wisdom. The reality that we live in is that God's truth, the way that God intended us to live, is seen as stupid. Foolish, idiotic. Everybody else is looking at us living this way and thinks we're upside down when in fact they're upside down. So this is why Paul says if you want to be wise, you have to become a fool. You're going to look like a fool to everybody else, but in foolishness you will find wisdom. It's a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement that upon investigation appears to be true. Or to shorten it, a paradox means it doesn't make sense, but there's truth in it. It doesn't make sense, but there's truth in it. Let me give you some examples. Swiss cheese has a lot of holes. Okay, The more holes you have, the less cheese you have. Therefore, the more cheese you have, the more holes you have. And therefore, you can accurately say the more cheese we have, the less cheese we have. Okay? And if all I have on my to-do list is the word nothing, and I do nothing, I cross it off the list, then all I have left on my to-do list is nothing to do. It doesn't make sense, but somehow it's true. To be wise, 
you have to become a fool. To be wise, you must become a fool. And we're going to explore more of these truths this week where we have to embrace these foolish things, these things that seem so foolish to embrace when in fact we find wisdom, we find good things there. Somehow when we lose, we seem to gain. Somehow when we're weak, we find strength. Somehow when we have a sense of insecurity or uncertainty in our lives, God grants us certainty, security. Paradoxology, then, is studying statements that don't seem to make sense and finding truth in them. Studying statements that don't seem to make sense, ideas that don't seem to make sense and finding the truth in them. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, is foolish to those who are in the world. In order to make the world wise again, Christ had to become a fool. You want to be wise? You've got to become a fool. There's no way around it. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the debater of this age? Where are the philosophers? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So there are two groups that see the message of the cross as foolishness in Paul's context. The first of which are the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews thought it was foolishness because why would the chosen one, why would the Messiah not have been a political leader, not have been a war hero? Why would he say, hey, yeah, that's fine, you can kill me? Why would he have said that? This doesn't make sense. How can we know this is actually the Messiah? It doesn't add up. The Greeks, they just couldn't wrap their heads around. It didn't fit into their philosophical mold that they imagined. Like, why would God, the spiritual, want to embrace the physical? The physical's bad. That's, That's stupid. Or how could God do this? Things like that. But today we run into similar pushback. How could I believe that God's real? I've never seen a miracle. How can I believe in this book of Scripture just because it says tells me to? How can I believe in a God who lets evil things happen? How can I believe in God that science can't prove? If you want to be a Christian, you have to become a fool. Christians are fools. Christians are fools. And if somehow you're able to live in this reality where you call yourself a Christian, but no one ever sees you as a fool in the world, then I'm not so sure you're a Christian. Not living the Christian life. Because when you act like Christ, the world will see you. Someone will see you as a fool. And you know, it is difficult. It is Hard. It's not enjoyable to wonder what people are thinking about you. It's not enjoyable to have to push people further away in your life because, that you love just because you can't make certain choices anymore. It's not fun to have people judge you. But at some point, you will have to be seen as a fool by someone you don't want to be seen as a fool by. It's going to happen. 
And even if you understand and comprehend that you, you shouldn't listen to the praise of man, it's hard because most of the time God just speaks in our soul, right? It's not that God has never spoke through eardrums, but people speak through eardrums all the time. I know they actually said it. It's concrete. I know I'm doing good because they said, hey, thumbs up. It's difficult because we don't want to be seen as a weirdo by the guy behind the counter at Pizza Hut. We don't want people to talk behind our backs like the weird guy who walks his ducks, wears water shoes all year round, and quacks whenever people go by. We don't want to be seen as a wacko. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam 2.0, Adam the restart. And he takes upon himself the punishment that man deserves, but also lives the life that men were supposed to live. He takes the humiliation that we deserve and gives us the grace that we don't. He became a laughingstock so we could find fulfillment. He became a fool so that we could be wise. But if we want to be in his kingdom, we have to act like we have to be a fool. But the new, good news is that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the fool of fools, is not going to ask you something to do that he didn't do himself. And he doesn't just leave it there. He sends you the spirit of foolishness, and that's not an insult because the spirit asks us to do things that are foolish in the eyes of the world. The spirit keeps telling us, hey, I want you to put this on. I want you to go over there and talk, but we say, no, not today. Nope. I'm not going to do that. I'm not putting that on. I don't want to be seen as a fool. The Spirit keeps asking me, hey, I want you to go talk to that person. Hey, I want you to sell that thing and give the money to someone in need. Hey, I want you to be more like Christ, but we throw away the opportunity. I don't want to look, look like that. Can I just be a part and not have to look like that? But you have to be a fool. You have to be a fool. You have to be willing to be a fool. If the king of kings, the Lord of lords, was a fool for you, can't you be a fool for him? If he was a fool for you, can't you be a fool for him? So how do we do that? One, you got to put your fool's hat on daily. I've talked before about how Paul calls us to put on the new self, and it's a daily process. Well, guess what? This is a standard part of the outfit. If you're not wearing this, you're not fully dressed. You're not up to code. And daily we say to ourselves, Lord, you were a fool for me today. I'll be a fool for you. I'm willing to be a fool for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a choice. And I have to confess to you, and you know me, that oftentimes I'm quicker to be a fool for my own benefit than for the sake of Jesus. And not all of us are this way, but it's a temptation for me. Sometimes I'm more willing to be funny and humiliate myself that way than to do the thing that the Spirit's asking me to do. And we all struggle with it in our own way. But you're not alone. So you got to put the fool's cap on daily. 
Choose daily to say, Lord, I will be a fool for you. Whatever you ask me to do, no matter how ridiculous it will look in the eyes of man, I will do it for you. And it is hard. And that's what leads us to the next one. We gotta be foolish with others. Foolish with others. I'm sure you've done a lot of dumb things with other people that you look back on and you're like, wow, I probably wouldn't have done that if I wasn't hanging out with those people. Stolen a teacher's bike, I've thrown stolen tomatoes at people at a party from the, sh- the shelter of a field. I've rearranged the letters on my high school sign to say something inappropriate. You do stupid stuff when you're with other stupid people. When, when you, it's just a reality. It's just like a virus. <laughs> but the good news is, is that even though so often the fellowship of fools is used for wickedness, the fellowship of fools can be used for righteousness. Is that when you're freaked out to go do something that's going to make you look like a fool, bring another fool with you. Because at least you know you're not alone. It gives you more courage. It does. And you don't have to feel bad about it because Christ meant us to be in community. But if you can't bring someone with you, then ask for some foolish accountability. Find somebody that you can share your foolish stories with. Man, you're never going to believe what these people thought of me today. But I did it for the Lord. Someone that can encourage you. Because even if they're not there, it's good to know that you're not the only one out there being a fool for the name of Jesus. So put your fool's cap on daily. Be foolish with others. And then third, you got to realize your freedom. you got to realize your freedom. Do you know that the court jester was like the only one that had freedom of speech in the king's court? He was the only one that had less risk of being executed for saying crazy things because he was doing it for the sake of mirth, for the sake of laugh. Didn't matter. He could make fun of the king. He could make fun of the king's wife as long is it could make everyone laugh. He had no restrictions because he knew he was safe. He knew the king had his back. Do you realize the king has your back? That even if you feel like these people can ruin your life because of how foolish they can make you look, that you serve a God who resurrects, that you serve a God who heals, that you serve a God who's going to punish the evildoers one day. Whatever you do right now, whatever they can do to you right now, you're good. It might not be fun, but the king has got your back. And that gives you a freedom to be able to be a fool like never before. So you've got to put the fool's cap on daily. You've got to be foolish with others. And you've got to realize your freedom. We're going to invite the band up for a time of response. The reality is that we have to live in these paradoxes that scriptures offers us. God goes against our world And we often find the opposite of what the world expects when God is with us. 
In our weakness, we find strength. In uncertainty, God grants security. When we fast, we end up feasting. When we're guilty, we find grace. When we're dead, we find life. When we embrace what is foolish in the eyes of the world, we find wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But you claim to be so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're so powerful. You're honored, but we're ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we're treated like the world's garbage. Like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. It is foolish to embrace the paradoxes of God. It is foolish to praise a God who contradicts the wisdom of the world. It's foolish to deprive ourselves to glorify our God. But on the other side of it is wisdom. Even though you look like a fool in the world's eyes, you are actually wise in the king's eyes. The altar is going to be open for you to confess your lack of foolishness and your commitment to embrace it. To say, Lord, I'm going to put the fool's cap on daily. Lord, I'm going to realize my freedom. Lord, I'm going to be foolish with others because I know what true wisdom is all about. I know you've got my back this week, this season. Do something foolish for him. Invite that person to church. Go to that discipleship small group. Ask someone if they'd like prayer. Refuse to do something the world tells you to do, but your king tells you not to. Come. Confess and commit to foolishness for the kingdom. Your king was a fool for you. Will you show him your commitment to be a fool for him? The altar is open. Lord, Make us fools for your name. Help us to see the foolishness that you embraced and help us to be able to walk in that because we know in foolishness there is truly wisdom. Give us the courage that can only come from you, Lord Jesus. Help us to glorify your name and lead others to be fools for your sake. In the name of Jesus we pray.